arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. I crossed the hill and o'er the moor and valley Such heavy thoughts my heart fulfills Since parting with my Sally Seek no more the fine and gay For each buzz doth remind me How swift the hours did pass away With the girl I left behind me Oh, that girl, that pretty little girl That girl I left behind me While I weep and I cried till the day I died For the girl I left behind me Shall I forget the night The stars were bright above me And gently lent their silver light When first she vowed she loved me Now I'm bound to Brighton camp Kind heaven made it find me And send me safely home again To the girl I left behind me Oh, that girl, that pretty little girl That girl I left behind me While I weeped and I cried Till the day I died For the girl I left behind me Shall honey taste no more The dove become a ranger The dashing waves shall cease to roar Ere she's to me a stranger The vows we've registered above Shall ever cheer and bind me Constantly to her I love The girl I left behind me Oh, that girl, that pretty little girl That girl I left behind me While I weeped and I cried Till the day I died For the girl I left behind me the Girl I Left Behind Me, sung by the late Rex Allen, the Arizona Cowboy. The Girl I Left Behind Me was an old English song. When soldiers went off to war or sailors on a naval vessel, it was carried over into the United States, which wasn't the United States, into the colonies in 1650 as Brighton Camp. Tom Loftus did indeed return to Appleton the town of his college days, and the home of the girl he truly left behind at the bus station when he joined the service. Loftus, back in his college bar, says to Zach that he will not make any unscheduled stops in Appleton. They spot an old service buddy and Loftus's first case officer, Vernon Crawford. Crawford, as well as Zach and Loftus, are in Appleton to see what Mundy and his pit bull, John Garvey, are doing with wireless electricity in the Appleton Hill. Episode 3 of Sojourn by Robert P. Fitton begins at the sound of the gong. Chapter 15 It was past 10 p.m. when Loftus drove a clear gas downsized vehicle through Appleton Center. He first saw St. Bernadette's tiled roof and bell tower lighted at night. The little shops along Main Street and the pub where he used to drink unfolded before him like unchanged stage fixtures. He had left this town as an idealistic young kid entering the service. All the aspirations toward a noble calling now lay buried in cynicism. As he slowed near the bus terminal, the brick cobblestones and the wood enclosure looked exactly as it did twenty years ago. He envisioned Cath's long brown hair and deep blue eyes fixed on the bus as it pulled away en route to New York City. 
What a mistake. Well, you can't have it both ways, Captain. I wonder where she is. Zack lit a cigar as Loftus sped out of town. They're going to fine you up here, Zack, for smoking that cigar. Oh, well. Within the sight of the university's skyscraper brick library and campus lights, he signaled for Mikey's motel parking lot. He stopped and stepped from the DV. Although newer campus buildings lined the street ahead, most of the area retained the same rural but cosmopolitan flavor he had left behind. The trees were higher, and he was older. The Appleton Motel. Why not something with a little pizzazz like the Dew Drop Inn? Asked Zach. The cigar crunched in the corner of his mouth. Loftus turned into the parking lot. Zach pushed open the door and walked around the van. He plugged in the van charger. What now, Captain? Asked Zach as he moseyed up to Loftus's window. The first thing I want to know is where the hell Mikey is. He looked toward the dimly lit motel office. Then he stepped outside. Zach, you talk to the clerk while I check Mikey's room. Will do, Captain. The two men moved in opposite directions. As Loftus passed the motel rooms in the quiet summer air, Cass's high cheekbones and bright blue eyes popped like a risk-com message into his thoughts. He faced the lights twinkling across the valley, knowing Cath was somewhere out there. Outside Mikey's darkened room, he removed one of Zack's scramblers from his field belt. He quickly deactivated the lock and opened the door. He flipped the side switch. Mikey's clothes hung straight in the open closet and his duffel bag was propped on the dresser. Loftus opened the empty drawers and shook his head as he checked the bathroom. The towels and face cloths were in place above Mikey's overnight case. He poured himself a glass of water from the tap. Had they taken Mikey into custody or was he dead? Portal screen on. The screen on the dresser brightened with the menu. Portal responded a few seconds later. Hold access required. Great. He backed away from the screen and pulled back the drapes. Zack continued to speak with someone inside the office. Loftus pushed Zack's direct connection. Zack looked at his wrist comm and saluted whoever was inside the office and then jogged toward Mikey's room. Loftus stepped into the open doorway. That office guy was going to call some Homeland Security guy because of my cigar. That's the least of our problems, Zack. Mikey isn't here. Loftus shut the door. I need access to the room portal. It requires a code. Zack nodded and swung his backpack onto the bed. He removed his tablet and pointed toward the portal screen. Loftus checked outside the drapes. Only a few cars passed by in darkness. Implement access code. Portal active. Answered the screen. Go ahead, Captain. Loftus let the drapes fall back in place. Portal! What time did Michael Brand leave? Not good that he's not here, said Zack. The blue letters on the screen indicated the last exit from the motel. Exit room 123, 6.52 a.m., July 19, 2048. Any messages for Brand? asked Locke. No messages, answered the portal in standard speak. I'm assuming he left for Vandermeer's house and didn't come back, said Loftus, staring at the screen. Yesterday morning. Mikey didn't deserve this. I keep thinking he's dead. He very well could be. Look, Captain, let's put together some kind of plan. Loftus shut off the light and the blue glow from the screen coated the motel room's flowery wallpaper. Zack ordered the screen shut down and they slipped out of the room. Loftus pointed to a large magenta sign across the street. The village trough still there. Let's go. Near midnight, Loftus stepped out of the men's room and panned the loud, smoky bar. 
He had brought Kath a drink in this bar several years ago, not long after he met her. Time hung over the expanse like a mighty beast, separating the innocent younger days from this new challenge. The bar, probably remodeled several times, the paneled walls darker, had the same general layout. He walked along rows of booths, sectioned from the bar by a half wall, capped with a translucent glass room. Zack, positioned over his tablet, lifted a moistened beer mug to his lips. For over an hour and a half, they studied maps of the area on the tablet to try and find a way to penetrate O'Brien's so-called mountain facility. Zack set down the mug and looked up in the blue tablet light. I'm going off stored information, Captain, updated seven months ago. I don't dare tap into the main system, even with the phony identity. Loftus glanced to the booth where he had first bought Kath a drink so many years ago. He took a swig of the cold beer. We need to figure a way into their system inside the mountain. Zack leaned back and rubbed his eyes. I'll be damned if I know how. That facility will be electronically impervious. Just do it, Zack said Loftus, grabbing the mug again. Twenty years ago, I would have guzzled this and ordered more. I bet you put him down on this place. That was a long time ago, good buddy. He set his mug on the table. Let's hope we find Mikey alive and get the relevant info back to DeLuca. No unscheduled stops? Loftus squinted and shook his head. Kath was still 19 years old in his mind. Her hair was deep brown, glistening and long. It flowed perfectly around her smooth skin and rounded lips. He looked into his friend's dark eyes. No unscheduled stops in Appleton. No stops. No regrets? Well, I didn't say that. Being here makes me feel out of control, he said, hoisting the mug, like the past is tugging at it. Maybe it is. Loftus, about to speak again, held his fluted glass in midair. Vernon Crawford, his curly hair grayer and his frame heavier, walked into the bar with a younger man with short brown hair, a white shirt, and a yellow striped tie. What's the matter, Captain? The old goat doesn't look that bad, said Loftus, smiling. Zack turned to his left. Oh, great, the gang's all here. Here we go, that old-time feeling. Can you get into his wrist, Tom? Give it my best shot. Zack removed his scanner again. He touched something on the screen and then looked closer. Then he pushed another icon. He has a private frequency. Loftus typed into the tablet. You old goat, what are you doing in a hangout like this? I like the booths. In the Appleton Motel Room, one, two, three. Nod your head twice. Desperado. Vernon and his young compadre ordered drinks at the bar about 20 feet away. The waitress inputted the order into her tablet as Vernon's dark eyes checked out every individual at every table up front. His wrist calm silently sounded because he raised his wrist upward. He pushed a button and then casually turned. Although he made eye contact with Loftus, he pretended to look toward the lounge to his right. Nonchalantly, as he faced the younger man, he nodded his head twice. That's the high sign. He'll follow us back. Let's go. He inputted a credit for the beers and then headed for the front door. He walked by Vernon and the other guy without looking at them. Seeing Vernon was like seeing his own father again. Maybe Loftus admired Vernon because he had been his first case officer in the service, and Vernon had taught him everything he knew about the service. Loftus checked his risk-com time. Two hours had elapsed since they left the village trough. He pulled back the heavy drapes. The same row of cars and a late model pickup remained parked under the transhalogens. 
From the fluffed-up pillows, Zack watched an inane portal movie with loud noise and odd music. Loftus turned from the window. I don't think Vernon would just run off and tattle to John Garvey. Maybe he's just timing it, Captain, trying not to just jump right over here. Maybe. Loftus had just taken one step toward the bed when someone knocked quickly on the motel room door. He and Zack both drew their guns. Zack leaped from the bed and followed him toward the door. Loftus leaned forward. Yeah? Open up the door, you turkey! Loftus smiled but continued holding his gun as he punched in the security digits. Vernon squeezed inside, followed by the younger man. Loftus quickly closed the door. His old case officer raised his gray brows and wrinkled his chocolate forehead. Well, well, well. Yes, well, 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 replied Loftus. He came to me from on high as I sat there at the bar and looked at my wrist comm. The missing link in this sordid scenario. Special delivery from San Francisco. He pointed his index finger. I have only one thing to say to you, Tommy. Only one thing? I would get right back on that subspace vehicle, whatever means you used to come up here, and I would head back to that restaurant of yours. Better yet, I would disappear altogether. He looked at Zack standing by the dresser. And his other half, back here for a little R&R, are you boys? Listen to him, Zack. I haven't seen him in ten years, and the old goat wants me to go back home. Vernon moved closer to Loftus. Tell me you're not involved in this. Loftus extended his hand and gave him a bear hug. Then he looked him in the eye. We're not involved in this, Vernon. Oh, fat chance. You two are in the thick of this, and you know it. He turned toward the other man. Bronsky. Meet Tom Loftus and his alter ego, Zach Grasso. Bronsky spoke in an official tone. I am familiar with Mr. Loftus's career with the Panthers. Oh, don't hold that against me, Bronsky, he said, shaking the younger man's rough hand. Vernon sauntered over to the chair, propped up his feet as Loftus moved toward the small refrigerator. You look good, Tommy. Drink, Vernon? Nah. Loftus chuckled. I can call John Garvey and have him make a special delivery. Vernon rubbed his mouth and peered over his shoulder. I told you, get the hell out of here. I'll pay for the tickets. And ruin this little vacation? asked Loftus. Bronsky took everything in. Drink, Bronsky? Nah, no thanks. He never touches his stuff, said Vernon. Loftus pulled an energy bar from the shelf and hurled it across the room. Vernon caught it and smiled. Don't you try and bribe me. Mike Brand, does the name mean anything to you guys? asked Loftus. Brand? asked Vernon. No. Works for Band 62 on the coast. He came up here during the middle of the week. Vernon slowly peeled back the bar's silver foil. He pushed his teeth into the chocolate surface. Let's be a little less formal. Why are you two Boy Scouts up here? Frankly, I would not be involved in this. Vernon, we are involved. What about you? What are you doing in Appleton? asked Loftus. Vernon produced a familiar chuckle as he munched. Well, about to ship out. So why don't you tell me what you know? Loftus grinned as he looked through the crack in the drapes. Nothing had changed outside. This feels like a Chinese ping pong match. Nobody trusts each other. Where's the Homeland Security guy you helped in San Francisco? So, how's the superconductor research going on, Vernon? Vernon crumpled the wrapper and tossed it into the wastebasket. Then he smiled. Superconductors, aren't they a genetically altered group of people? Vernon, what the hell is going on up here? 
What about that Homeland Security officer, O'Brien? Loftus paused. He's dead. Oh, Jesus Christ. Vernon rumbled out of the chair like a bear from the cave and joined Loftus at the window. He squinted as he looked outside. Tommy, I'm not about to lay my ass on the line without knowing who you're working for. O'Brien was being pursued by the service because of something going on up here, Vernon. Just tell him, Captain, said Zack from across the room. Loftus nodded and looked into Vernon's dark, moist eyes. O'Brien told us they were transmitting electricity sub-atmospherically, invisibly, without wires. Well, we did see sparks flying around those antennas on the ridge. Garvey seems to be fronting the whole thing. Rima is at it again. I think there are people up here that have carte blanche. Vernon, I think you've been given a line. Something else is going on up here. Well, Colonel Garvey briefed us, said Bronsky. He never mentioned this electric thing. Loftus winced at Bronsky, but he faced Vernon. I need full recorded answers for my contact. Yes. Yes, uh, and who might that be? And how did O'Brien find you? Loftus glanced at Bronsky. I'll tell you privately. Well, be my guest, said Vernon, motioning to the door. Loftus opened the door and stepped into the cooler air. His eyes ached as he gazed at the security camera and checked the lot. Vernon gently closed the door and the two men ambled slowly away from the motel. Loftus again thought about Kath as he stayed at the university's darkened buildings. They stepped behind a trash bin and surrounding fence near the transhalogen. John Garvey is running the show up here, Tommy. Wild John. Well, last night, Wild John shot Garrett Raster dead. He what? asked Loftus. I was there. He emptied the whole chamber on Raster. Raster worked for years at Rima. He's brilliant. Was brilliant. Eccentric, but brilliant. Vernon shook his head. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Raster provoked Garvey. You know John. He shoots first and worries about the implications later. If you know what I mean. I know exactly what you mean. Maybe we're closer to being on the same side than you think, Vernon. I still work for the service, Tommy. Loftus's face tightened as he thought about Long Beach and Allsworthy's death in the explosion. He turned back toward town as Vernon briefly put his hand on his shoulder. I didn't mean that the way it sounded. Forget my not working for the service anymore. Long Beach is history. I shouldn't tell you this, but I reviewed Long Beach on the QT. They didn't know you reviewed everything? Vernon shook his head. Nope, and... Someone ran an 1122 on the whole operation. Everything was a rework for public consumption. I'm very much aware of the 1122 operations, Vernon. I've spent a whole lot of downtime, and that isn't too pretty. Eventually, I opened a restaurant outside San Francisco. He stepped closer to his old friend. Why an 1122, Vernon? Vernon rubbed his hand over his mouth, just as he used to when he was nervous. His dark eyes watered as he stared at Loftus. I don't know how to tell you this. It's simple, Vernon. They wanted Allsworthy's killers protected, and they wanted me to be the scapegoat. I always thought it was some rogue service operation. Maybe more than that, Tommy. My operatives found something outside the official probe. A student from Berkeley named Dave Horton, like hundreds of others on the Vincent Thomas Bridge. Horton had visited his girlfriend in Almonte. They had a fight, and he went down to Long Beach to visit some museums. As you are well aware, Allsworthy's yacht began a loop around the outside Maritime Museum where the Catalina Ferries come in. 
We had a campaign rally there, his last speech, Vernon. He spoke about taking down the city barricades. Very strange. He said he had a new way to accomplish all this, some kind of plan, but he never elaborated. I understand, but listen to this. You were ahead of him in the lead boat. We went under the bridge and into the harbor. The one thing that stuck in my mind was something that Zack noticed. Allsworthy, with all those people on the bridge, was not on deck. He should have been out there waving to those people. We had run scans on everyone on that bridge. We went over all those scans, Tommy, and that's how I traced down the Horton thing. Loftus looked up in the security light. His throat tightened. No one was implicated in dropping anything from that bridge. Vernon crossed his arms. Horton was questioned along with everyone else on the bridge. They were brought to the Maritime Museum, I remember. Correct. He was dismissed at 9.30 and boarded the ferry for Avalon. Catalina Island? Why? Will you let me tell you this? I have no idea why. I can tell you what he saw on that boat. Look, Vernon, I've gone over this in my head for eight years. The lower part of that ferry was cordoned off by the service, specifically for Harmon Mundy. What? Mundy was told to work with a debris crew. His orders were to recover every inch of that yacht. And he did. But the ferry was notified before the explosion. Loftus turned away and exhaled. Then he walked back to Vernon. Do we know who was in that cordoned off area? Officially, no. But Horton sent a detailed message on his wrist comm. To whom? Yvonne Clausen, his girlfriend. Horton said that the lower area was buzzing with medical personnel. Are you saying that Allsworthy was still alive at that point? I am saying that that area was a jerry-rigged medical ward. Oh, come on, Vernon. Other people were injured on that yacht. That makes sense. I understand that, too. Put his hand on Loftus' shoulder. Horton arrived at Avalon and checked into the Wrigley Inn. I don't like theories designed to fit what you want to believe. Horton was murdered. His throat was slit. What happened to the RISCOM? Gone. I don't know whether Horton hid the RISCOM or they got it. Loftus leaned against the fence. It should be easy to find a summation of what went on in the lower portion of that ferry. One would think so, but it's been wiped clean. Not to doubt you, Vernon, but why didn't Clausen come out with this information? Clausen kept a copy of the message. She knew it was important because she left a disc with the file in a bank security vault in Pasadena after Horton was murdered. Vernon, I appreciate you're caring enough to look into this, but... Then they got her, Tommy. Loftus faced him with his mouth open. Her car was forced off the road to Mount Wilson. Witnesses said it was forced off the road. No one was ever charged. Her RISCOM box was erased. Everything for 15 minutes after she died. How did you find the disc? Well, we figured it out because of the bank record. Why didn't the service figure this out? They missed it. We sent somebody in there to get it. The recording is in a secure place. Don't you think I should have access to that? I purposely don't have that information. I would have to go through an elaborate portal procedure just to get the person who has the access code. And then there's a second entry code through an unknown operative. Do you think Nathan was on that ferry? Vernon pressed his lips. I don't have that answer. All departing flights and ship's logs from Avalon have been scanned. Nothing resembling a medical emergency was ever recorded. What about the local hospitals? 
Nothing. It was checked out thoroughly years ago. They could have moved the ferry operation to an estate island. There's no way to check that. Could all add up to nothing, Vernon. Well, I thought I had to tell you because I believe you were set up. I'm worried that you and Bronsky were set up. Well, I'm beginning to think you're right. I also think that Harmon Mundy is behind both setups. Oh, dear God. Tommy, get out of here. I think too much of you to let you die at the hands of John Garvey. Then he turned in the transhalogen silver glaze and put his hand on Loftus's arm. I don't know how to tell you this, but they killed your friend, Mike Brand. Loftus closed his eyes and his stomach folded as he lowered his head. Damn, this is my fault. He had a cover as a painter at Vandermeer's house and went by the name of Miguel Arrio. I know, we gave him the cover. He was screening conversations in the house and then he fled to the mountains. Garvey overrode my orders and sent his goons up there in jet copters. Loftus clenched his fists. I want John Garvey's ass. I want Harmon Mundy ruined. How do I get in that facility? Vernon stared ahead as he spoke. This is too big, even for you. I've tried calling every contact I've made for the last 40 years. You can't get in there. There's no one getting in there. It's priority one classified. Well, Vandermeer, he comes and goes in there, right? Asked Loftus. Sure, but he's surrounded by security. You'll end up getting yourself killed. Pack your bags and go home, man. Vernon turned and started back toward the motel. Loftus spoke into the night air. My contact is Crow's Peak. Vernon, his back still toward Loftus, rotated around mechanically. Does DeLuca know about Horton? No. And what does Mr. DeLuca say about all this, Mr. Loftus? I was given instructions not to access Frank until I got information. He stared at his old friend. I don't think Frank really knows what's going on up here. Ah, tell me this isn't happening. Molly and I have our travel plans ready. I'm retiring in 58, now 57 days. Then he smiled and put his hand on Loftus's shoulder again. Never gets out of your blood, does it? Loftus shook his head. Mike Brand was my friend. And this is my responsibility. I remember you told me something many years ago when I first met you. The old Loftus luck. It's either really good or really bad. Nothing in between. They moved together back to the motel. You better pray that the old Loftus luck is really good. Chapter 16 Loftus studied Vernon's wide brown eyes in the white transhalogen light. Then he opened the motel room door. Mikey's death in the mountains unraveled his frayed emotions. Zack, perched near the window, pushed back the drapes. He locked eyes with Loftus, and somehow he knew what had happened. Before Loftus could say anything, Bronsky stepped forward. You must think I'm stupid, Vernon. Vernon put his hands on his hips and squinted. Bronsky, what the hell are you talking about? I don't think you should be cooperating with these men. You step outside with this cowboy. Cowboy? I'll give you cowboy. We have a rogue elephant on the loose here. Do you really think John Garvey has the authority to be operating up here? The director has authorized Colonel Garvey. He's in full legal compliance. Loftus skirted around Vernon and confronted the kid. Already on the edge because of Mikey, Loftus was not going to take his guff. The director was installed by his political cronies after Allsworthy was allowed to die. 
Loftus produced a pretend smile and then stepped within inches of Bronsky's clean-shaven face. I think you better choose your words a bit more carefully, son. We can't plot against our own agency, said Bronsky. Bronsky, said Loftus, aren't you listening? They're doing this behind the backs of those who supposedly gave them authorization. You know, the unimportant people like the President and Congress. I, for one, am not reckless. Loftus shook his head. Vernon thought for a moment and then spoke in a lower voice as he creased his brow. We're supposed to ship out of here tomorrow night. My opinion is we're limited as to what we can do. I say we all get the hell out of here and regroup somewhere else. No, I have a plan. Loftus glanced at Bronsky and then back at Vernon. Zack, why don't you bring Mr. Bronsky here out for a little walk? Yes, sir. Zack motioned Bronsky to the door, but the young agent stared at Loftus as he exited the room. Loftus closed the door and faced his old friend. Just like old times, eh, Vernon? Oh, too much like old times. You know that kid is trouble. I know that. Zack and I talked about the facility when we were in the bar. I'm getting inside of Vandermeer's trunk. What, are you crazy? That place is crawling with security since they killed Brand. But I'll admit, security was sloppy letting Brand in there. How did he get in there? Does Vandermeer's house have a garage? Yes, but I'll tape the lock and ride right at the facility. Very simple. Zack and I will scan the inside of that place. Then we'll call DeLuca. It sounds too simplistic. Sometimes the best plans are simple. Vernon scratched his fluffy gray hair. Risky, Tommy. Risky. Vandermeer is a scientist, not a security man. I can do it, Vernon. You know that. Fine, but Vandermeer isn't back from Washington yet. The whole thing is risky, I tell you. Tommy, I'd like to be able to spend time with my grandchildren. Now, you're asking me to put my ass on the line. It's not that easy. What well, never is. I walk into a bar for a simple mug of beer, and a few hours later, I'm working against my superiors. Monday is no one's superior, said Loftus. Amen to that. Loftus wrote his RISCOM number on the motel stationery and handed the paper to Vernon. My RISCOM is a current agency device subject to the 57-second agency trace. How the hell did you get an agency RISCOM? Never mind, don't tell me. Loftus checked the parking lot. Zack and Bronsky stood on the sidewalk away from the transhalogen. I don't trust that little bastard. Yeah, but you've been with Zack for so many years. Loftus grinned. You know who I mean. I can handle Bronsky. I hope so, Vernon. I'm ready to move out whenever you are, said Loftus. Who says I'm ready at all? Vernon maneuvered the large white Corsia vehicle from the motel parking lot, and the taillights disappeared in the darkness toward town. The screen light covered Zack sleeping in the other bed with an azure glow. Portal. Get me the local landlines and street listings. Zack sat up. Tom, let her stay in the past. Loftus squinted at the blue letters on the screen. Appleton Base Directory. I just want to see where she lives, Zack. Portal, listing for a Kathleen Putnam or a Dr. John Putnam. The screen instantly indicated no such listing existed. He raised his brows as Zack closed his eyes on the folded pillows. Try the name Kathleen Grady. Zack hit the pillow, turned over, and grumbled as he pulled up the covers. Loftus's eyes moistened in the intense longing from years ago rushed over him like a gusty northeast wind. Grady. Kathleen. 
415 North Street, Appleton. SRA at 0904. Find what you were looking for, Captain. Asked Zach from under the covers. I did. Chapter 17. Trevor's hardened feet fit snugly into his dried sandals. The journey over the high, narrow mountain trail had cost the lives of many older Montang members, and the learned one grew weak in the thin air. Trevor wet his lips with the cool water trickling through the rocky crevices, but he was hungry and the foodstuff bags were nearly empty. Many members questioned whether the Boonshoff existed at all. The river meandered past tree clumps and a sandy canyon floor. His father said they had to trust Tob and Shar to carry them on this journey, prophesize millenniums before they were born. Tab and Shar would lead them to freedom from the interventions, the Creod killers. Afternoon shadows darkened the flat river plain on the valley floor. Several Montane positioned poles at the shoulder and carried the learned one on a swung-on havar strip stretched between the poles. A gold blanket covered him and he held the tattered saber against his chest as the wind rippled over the river's brown water. The breeze ruffled the tiny tree leaves and reached the old man's long white hair and beard. They set the swangon upon a flat rock and the group gathered around the learned one. Trevor knew they were about to resonate, but he only wanted food in his belly. The learned one's voice mixed with the wind gust. Praise be to the ancient ones. Let us reflect on their magnificent accomplishments. In the first millennium, before Tabanshah departed, there were great miracles in the skies, flying ships from other worlds. And the world of Tabanshah lives onward, here and now. As the world shines with devotion, we contemplate our own journey. The Saber says, they will march to the high ground and reach the sacred shrine in glory. Behind the Bunshaf lay the walls of existence. Comes the Suryaf Khan from afar. His task is great, and he will suffer in battle. Through the night and day he strives, the Suryaf Khan, opening eternity to the destroyers. For the final battle brings forth oneness against the interventions. The end has begun, and the end is near. Praise be to Tabun Shah. They lifted the swangon from the rock, and the learned one pointed down the river. The Montan will be divided now. Women and children will remain near the canyon trail as the others gather the food necessary for our final journey. Trevor feared his father leaving. His father moved with the other men along the wide river as Trevor stood next to the Montane woman. Whenever his father was out of sight, thoughts of his mother's violent death by the Creods rushed into his head. He missed her comforting touch. Trevor sat near the river as a member of the Montang ran back to the group. The little man put his hands on his knees as he breathed heavily. Between the long breaths, he spoke of an abandoned settlement beyond the trees downstream. No Althasharians remained. Not only were their buildings collapsed by an attack, but the empty foodstuff bags showed how the Creods had destroyed their enemies. One of the men lifted a small wooden water bowl to Trevor's lips. The wetness soothed his dry throat, and with her fingers, she dabbed drops over his parched face. The breeze cooled his skin, but the star 
soon returned and heated his face. For a moment, he forgot they were on the journey to the shrine. A high-pitched buzzing beyond the tree clumps broke the silence. As the noise grew louder, the woman sat up and others stood as he gazed down the river. Red pavos insects, capable of stinging, with two curved claws, always buzzed when disturbed. The bushes rustled below the trees and he clung to the Montang woman. Three massive green creatures rumbled out of the foliage. The women pulled him behind the bushes. Through the leaves he saw creatures twice as tall as his father. They moved gracefully for such large beings. Their rounded black mesh blue eyes atop their oversized smooth green shell sent Trevor hiding behind the women. Their heads tapered down to a narrow chin and two sharp pink fangs stuck out of either side of a thinner, deeper green mouth. Their silver uniforms glistened like the river ripples. The pavos insects did not cause the buzzing. The buzzing began when they spoke. Trevor, whispered the learned one as he called from the swangong. Trevor looked over his shoulder at the frosty-haired old man. You have to warn the others, Trevor. I am afraid, or they will die. Run around and back through the woods. Warn them that the Creods are here. Trevor stared at the creatures and then glanced briefly at all the women and other children, awaiting his reply. He pivoted in the dirt and rushed through the bushes only because he feared for his father's safety. Away from the Creods, he scurried along the sandy shore. The Montang men were beyond the thicket down the river. His little heart beat quickly as he ran next to the canyon wall. Beyond the dense brush, the group waded in the water near the far shore. The creatures! The creatures! One of the Montangs said something to his companion and pointed to Trevor as he ran. More Montang turned as his father dove into the water. He swam some distance and when he stood, the water dripped from his wrappings. Trevor ran into the river and threw himself into his father's mighty arms. Creatures near the women and children, three of them. His father waved the other Montang back across the river. Trevor was secure in his father's grasp. The group swam across the current and gathered on the riverbank. His father told him they must prepare to fight the hordes. He continued to hold Trevor as he led them back. They marched up the hill and followed the canyon, but as they neared the encampment, Dozens of headless bodies were motionless on the sand. Trevor erupted in tears and his father lifted him behind a large rock. The Montang grabbed sticks when his father spotted a creod across the river. Trevor trembled when the creod saw the Montang advancing across the river. Now he feared for his father's life. With a superior body and possibly an energy weapon, the creature might crush any of them. The group met the creod in the shallow part of the water. The Montang hurled sticks and rocks against the Creod. He bashed Trevor's father's head and shoulder. No! Trevor cried into the afternoon air. The creature then hoisted one of the Montang upward and hurled him hard enough to clear the river. He tumbled onto the sandy bank. Then the creature swung his long arms swiftly and beheaded the other Montang. His father, back on shore, had an open gash on his thigh and hobbled forward but the creature chased him through the water. His father flipped around and thrust a huge stick into the creod's stomach. Thick yellow blood gushed to the river, but the creod was still alive and pulled the stick from his stomach. 
He stumbled but fell face down in the water. Trevor slipped in the sands as he ran forward. The stinking creod blood still covered his limping father. He clutched onto his father and cried, How can we go on now? His father winced in pain. He held his leg as he returned to the water and washed the creod blood and stench from his skin and wrappings. He strained to speak. We will bury our dead before the others return. The sun lingered over the hills and the first stars shone in the darkening heavens. Trevor helped his father move the montane bodies and then scooped out the sand to bury them. In the twilight, he held the rocks covering the graves away from the river. His father, weakened by the attack, held the heavy worn saber. Trevor studied the stars above, but he saw the pain in his father's tired eyes. He put his hand on Trevor's shoulder. Our journey is not yet over. We must follow the ancient words and find the passageway. The Bunshar, where the carpet meets the Beverilliton above the scepter. Chapter 18. Mundy tried to keep his balance as the jet hit turbulence. He fell back into the cubicle chair midway down the aisle. The rain whipped past the rounded windows. Maybe he should have stayed in Washington until the weather cleared. He leaned back in the chair and closed his eyes within the jet's hum. Too many problems were lurking. By now, Vandermeer was back in Appleton, but Mundy worried more about DeLuca. They should have presented everything to the president first instead of following the premium mobile's suggestion to inform DeLuca. For some reason, the premium mobile had an odd affinity to DeLuca. A full report on the demonstration would be required once Mundy reached Bathurst Island. He opened his eyes and chided himself for worrying so much. With the successful testing of Phase 1, he had strengthened his own position with the premium mobile. He leaned forward and picked up the phone. A simple push of a transmission button connected him directly to the Bathurst complex. Bathurst base, Lieutenant Boxer. This is Monday. I wish to speak to the Premium Mobile. The storm caused a static interference within the satellite. Yes, Colonel. He has time, but he has been expecting your call. Monday's heartbeat accelerated. The premium mobile's unpredictability made him nervous. He might take the phase one success the wrong way. Monday tapped his fingers on the desk and stared into the watery blast over the wing. Come on, we're landing soon if that storm clears. Although the transmission remained choppy, a slight hiss on the channel indicated a connection to the premium mobile's office. In a low-pitched, almost automated cadence, the premium mobile's voice reverberated over the speaker. This is the premium mobile. Premium Mobile, how nice of you to accept my call. I want to report that we are preparing to land, and if the storm... Then why call me now? Mundy fidgeted with the phone. The premium mobile's slow, deliberate tone left him tapping his finger again. No, I think he was impressed, and I... Van Demir sensed apprehension. It was my opinion that DeLuca should sell the security aspect to Norman King. DeLuca is a good man, very talented. We will take other measures if he does not convince Norman. 
transmission hung, Mundy stood and wrapped the receiver. Premium Mobile! Premium Mobile! He dared not to hang up or attempt to call back, having been reprimanded several times for not allowing the Premium Mobile to speak. For ten minutes he gripped the phone as the aircraft dipped. He repeatedly tried to place the call as he sipped his drink occasionally. When the hiss returned to the phone, he sat up and set down the drink. I have been informed that John Garvey killed Brassett of his captain. Well, I'm sorry, Premium Mobile. No. I commend Garvey's actions. And Brassett could not be trusted if he was giving out vital information to the lower level in the project. I totally agree, Premium Mobile. Agree, agree, agree. I thought you would. Now, find out Mobilio was working for and do it now. Find O'Brien's source in San Francisco. Yes, I will. We're working on it. I didn't realize that you knew all this lower level information. Mundy's hands shook as he held the phone. I know that we're so close to being operational it You know nothing, Harmon. You never did, did you? No, Mr. Allsworthy, no. That name is from another time and place. When you land at Zappers, you will be put directly to my office. Back in Appleton, we can commence linking the entire power grid into the far energy that exists under that curse, and then work our way to control the central needs. Peace and civility will return. We will take back what is ours. You are a brave man, Premium Mobile. I will follow you to the death, to the death. No, you won't. You are and have always been a self-serving coward who would foremost save his own skin. Mundy buried his head in his hands and then looked up. But Premium Mobile, I'm the one who rescued you from Long Beach on the ferry. Rescued! The channel went silent. The Premium Mobile never acknowledged Mundy's role at Long Beach. He stared out the cabin window again and wondered if he was no longer useful since DeLuker had seen the full demonstration and Phase 1 was complete. When he landed at Bathurst Island, a death squad might await him. Maybe he should flee, but they would track him down, and his only hope lay in cooperating and submitting to the Premium Mobile. Chapter 19 Vernon's eyes stung as he drove slowly through Appleton Center and sipped on a bitter cup of coffee. He wondered whether Loftus had talked him into doing something stupid. Bronsky had argued against it when they stuffed Loftus and Zack in the trunk earlier. Then they started for Vandermeer's compound. You all right back there, Tommy? He heard Loftus's muffled voice. Relax, Vernon. You're acting like an old hen. Will you wait until you're 65 years old? What did he say, Zack? A hundred and sixty-five? Loftus, I can keep you in that trunk, you know. 
Vernon looked in the mirror toward the rear seat and smiled. Bronsky's stern look bothered him. We need time at that compound to get in the car, Vernon. You'll have to stall them. I'm preparing a grand performance. Don't you come out till you hear me sneeze. Got that? Sneeze. Bless you. The door slammed, shaking the vehicle, and the shoes outside clicked against the cement as Vernon and Bronsky crossed Vandermeer's garage. Someone knocked on the inside door. After some commotion, featuring Vernon's blabbering, a louder, more authoritative voice took over and agreed to let both Vernon and Bronsky inside. Vernon's sneeze echoed through the garage just seconds before the inside door shut. Loftus slowly pushed open the trunk. The garage reeked of gasoline fumes. Vandermeer's Mercedes, described by Vernon, came into view through the crack. He fully lifted the CV's trunk and rolled in unison with Zack onto the gray-painted floor. Zack placed an electronic suction device on Vandermeer's Mercedes door. He opened the door and then popped the trunk. This vehicle is not alarmed, Captain. Loftus nodded and spread a thick piece of tape across the trunk lock. Then they climbed inside. He shined his pocket flashlight around the trunk. Zack squinted. He looked like a chiseled Italian sculpture in the stark light and shadows. Listen, we have to move in quick once we're inside that facility. We don't even have a blueprint, Captain. I'll record everything and we'll transmit it later to DeLuca. You can bet they're not doing what they say they're doing up here. And then DeLuca will bust Mundy's fat ass. Well, I'm all for that. Unrecognizable voices were barely audible from inside the house, but Vernon's laugh soon bellowed into the garage. Oh, no, no, Bronsky and I are leaving, and we don't even know what this project is all about. The service says superconductors, frankly. I'm confused, Horace. Vernon, you just don't want to know. Vandermeer's voice moved in conversation with Vernon, along with a half a dozen pairs of shoes tapping against the concrete. As time goes on, you'll understand, but be glad for now, Vernon, you don't know. I have to report to the facility. No, I do want to know, said Vernon. Vandermeer opened the Mercedes door and the car bounced as he got inside. He threw something, perhaps a briefcase, onto the seat. Then he started the engine. John Garvey told you what he wanted to tell you. Well, John Garvey killed Garrett Raster. He could kill you too, Horace, said Vernon over the engine's loud noise. The Mercedes engine echoed in the garage. Garvey has his limits, Vernon. I'd advise you guys to forget you're even up here. Vernon's voice faded as Vandermeer backed the car from the garage and, and turned in the driveway. Vernon approached the car outside. Why were we brought up here, Horace? Don't hang around to find out. The car turned again, throwing Loftus against the side of the trunk. Vandermeer stopped and then accelerated. As the engine spun and the Mercedes shifted, Loftus flipped on the flashlight again and whispered, Garvey's lying. He's out of control, Zack. No argument on either count, Captain. He doused the flashlight as the Mercedes dipped downhill, probably toward the mountain range. Only when he was pressed against the trunk latch did Loftus confirm Vandermeer had proceeded up the Route 114 grade toward the facility. The directional sounded. The car turned again. He perceived a smoother, winding road. At least five minutes passed. Then the Mercedes rolled down a short, steep grade and stopped. Vandermeer said something, maybe to a guard, and pulled away. A full five minutes later, 
The Mercedes slowed and hit a bump and finally stopped. The engine echoed again, and he heard voices once the engine shut down. As the car dipped, Vandermeer got out. Loftus turned up the amplifier in his ear. Vandermeer pontificated in generalities about his trip to Washington. The voices soon faded, and a door closed in the distance. Loftus waited a few minutes before he slowly cracked open the trunk. Zack aimed a small flattened device at a reflective concave mirror in the upper corner. Cameras will appear normal. I don't think we want to be on some guard screen, Captain. Agreed. Loftus stepped into a concrete garage designed to accommodate 15 or 20 cars. He listened through the earphone. Walls are thick. They trotted along several vehicles in a military jeep parked next to a door under a modified camera. Zack quickly placed a scanner against the side security panel. Red numbers danced around the screen, stopping one by one like a lottery drawing. He pushed a button and the lock popped. They slipped inside and Zack immediately zapped another overhead camera. Loftus led Zack into a stairwell to the right. At the top of the concrete stairs and adjacent to a row of beige lockers, Vandermeer and three other men had changed into white fatigues. Loftus held his gun up and leaned against the concrete. Zack hovered beneath the car at a camera. Vandermeer opened an alarmed inner door at the end of the lockers and disappeared inside the complex. Zack removed a metallic blue box from his pocket and asked Loftus to lift him up. Loftus clasped his hands together. Zack jumped and Loftus hoisted Zack upward. Holding onto a ceiling girder, Zack attached the box to the side of the camera and pulled out a tiny chrome antenna. He typed in a series of instructions into his tablet and leaped to the floor. This will override the main system. Every time we trip a camera, we won't be in the picture. The screen will compensate. You're a wizard, Zachary. He motioned Zack around the cinder blocks. Loftus grabbed two sets of fatigues from the long row of hangers to the left. They quickly donned the white jumpsuits over their clothes and headed to the door near the lockers. Zack again tapped into the security code and they walked into a small concrete stairwell leading to a dimly lit corridor above. The low-pitched hum buzzed through the concrete. Loftus, his gun pointed up, rushed up the stairs and slid down the corridor. He passed by several closed doors and peered into a prodigious room surrounded by a double-rail blue catwalk. Five enormous red metallic coils below, the size of apartment buildings, tapered upward to a perforated silver tube, punctuating the concrete ceiling hundreds of feet above. Your tax dollars at work, said Zack. Loftus grinned and panned his tablet. I won't even ask how Rima flimflammed this thing. Zack adjusted his ear amplifier but shook his head. That hum, it's drowning out everything, Captain. We'll have to get closer. We need more for DeLuca anyways, let's go. Loftus tilted his head in amazement as Zack penetrated the security lock and pulled back the wire mesh door. A louder, persistent rumble resonated through his bones as he stepped onto the catwalk. He cautiously inched forward along the double railing and the gridded metal surface. Men in white fatigues worked below. A hundred yards away, additional coils and a glass booth protruded over the far side of the catwalk. This is quite unbelievable, Captain. He zoomed in closer on his tablet and turned to Zack. We need to record that lower area. Zack nodded and they trekked along the catwalk near the inner wall. Loftus pointed at a side door. 
Zack nodded and they entered the stairwell. He counted eleven flights as they bounded downward. Zack said the lower door was not alarmed and they ducked into a cramped area with metal pipes and wires strewn across a low concrete ceiling. Loftus recorded everything on the tablet. Zack lifted a handheld scanning tablet. I'll have a schematic of this mess shortly. Frank will like that. I'll nail Monday if it's the last thing I do. Captain, there are a few unsecured landlines down here. Should I attempt to tap into one of their lines? Try it. We're not going to hear much around here with that hum. I'll scan the lines for Vandermeer, said Zack as he studied the handheld screen and crouched down across the room. He popped the covers on a series of black panels. Loftus hunched over and remained poised with his gun. He faced the stairwell as Zack fiddled with the lines. Zack turned when an amplified voice vibrated on his tablet. Check the incoming feeds. Dr. Vandermeer can elaborate. Yes, this is Dr. Vandermeer. Loftus gave the thumbs up sign. We're under great pressure up here. Yes, I apologize. I was on a late flight from Washington. I don't know why the coil gradient should not be at peak efficiency. They're demanding a peak transmission. We think it's the coils, Doctor. Oh, God, I hope not. I don't want Harmon Monday all over me for something messed up on this end. Are you sure that problem doesn't originate at Bathurst Island? Loftus whispered again. Where the hell is Bathurst Island, Zack? Zack moved a few items on his screen. Northern Canada. O'Brien was right. They are transmitting electricity. Captain, to do what they're saying, there has to be a source. Bathurst, maybe. Loftus stared at Zack's tablet. Vandermeer sounded testy. We have 13 stations involved in the transmissions. Why does the problem have to be at this one? The abnormalities suggest Appleton. I'd give my right arm to have Garrett Raster back here. John Garvey was a fool to have killed him. I know. Listen, once we are fully drawing electricity out of Bathurst, we'll need all the competent people we can muster. Then maybe we can find out exactly how Rima researched it. Agreed, Doctor. We'll hold back the reports on this end until you guys get things stabilized. Well, I'm sure it's minor. We'll keep Monday off your back. Thanks, Norm. We'll get on it right now. Loftus motioned for Zack to cut the line. He pulled back the wires and tucked the portal in its carrying case. They stared back toward the stairwell. The power up north must be substantial, and it's all done invisibly from northern Canada. Loftus pulled back the door and they climbed the stairs. Obviously, they tried to dupe Frank. Right, superconductor research. Let's get a schematic of those coils. Power must come directly from above and into the grid. That would be my guess, but we'll have to get closer, Captain. Do you really want to press your luck? We already have enough to sink Monday. Frank needs it all. Besides, you know the old loftus luck. It's either really good or really bad. Chapter 20 Loftus looked into his friend's dark eyes when they found a door next to the work area under the catwalk. Can you scan from here? No, we actually have to go out there. From ground level, Loftus peered through the window square at the massive glistening red metal coils. Only a few hundred feet separated them from the five men in white jumpsuits seated at the console abutting the last coil. Zack held out the tablet as they shuffled across the concrete. He scanned the upper blue catwalk and kept his gun tucked under his fatigues. There's a tremendous amount of interference, said Zack. He backed up to the coil and placed the tablet against the metal facade. Okay, here we go. Three men in blue uniforms appeared on the catwalk as Loftus panned the upper area. 
He spoke out of the corner of his mouth. Zacky, it's time to leave the party. Zack studied the reading on his screen. A few more seconds, Cap. One of the guys made eye contact with Loftus and turned to the other men. Loftus pulled Zack away from the coil. The sound of men running above shook the catwalk as they sprinted to the outer door. A loud, deep voice echoed from an amplified signal above. Stop right there. Well, I guess we should have knocked, said Loftus, stepping through the doorway. He ran with Zack to a widening adjacent corridor. The great concrete area leveled out with three corridors converged at a central door marked E9. Zack placed the deactivation box on the door but had trouble overriding the alarm. Loftus checked up the ramp. Any time now, good buddy. Just a thought, Captain, but uh, that same old time feeling is coming back. This thing won't open. Loftus waved him back and pointed his gun at the box. He fired once and split the plastic. They jarred the door from the wall and squeezed into an open storage area with metal stacks filled with blue barrels extending along high walls. Zack melted the lock and hinges and then secured the door as Loftus retreated to the stacks and ran his fingers over the huge blue plastic drums. Flammable. Captain, if you're thinking of blowing this place up, well that would stick in Harmon Mundy's craw, wouldn't it? Zack read the labels. Carbon tetrachloride compound. They must use this stuff as a coolant for the coils. Forget about Monday and let's get out of here. A diversion may be our only means to escape. The same muffled, gruff voice from the catwalk yelled outside the door. You are trespassing inside a United States government installation. Throw down your weapons and come out immediately. Loftus saw no exit along the concrete walls. Someone banged on the outside door. Zack sprinted along another stack and disappeared around the corner. It's imperative you come out now. We will not continue to warn you and will be forced to take aggressive action. Zack returned a short time later and they continued to bash the outside door. I don't see anything down here either, Captain. I'll give them aggressive action. Loftus stared at the duck grate above the stacks. We'll use the ducks. He climbed like a monkey up the barrels and ripped loose the grate and hurled it to the concrete. Let's go, said Zack. I want to leave my calling card. That may be the ticket. Both men bolted toward the forward barrel stack. Loftus took a position between the stack and the door as Zack dislodged one of the barrels and rolled it. Loftus caught the barrel on the run and spun it toward the door. When he turned, Zack had a second barrel spinning across the concrete. In a few minutes, they constructed a triple row of blue containers to the barricade door. Repeating loud thuds against the door shook the room. Loftus followed Zack up the side stacks as a deafening crash loosened the door. He helped Zack inside the duck and then slithered down inside on his stomach. With his gun pointed, Loftus faced barrel stacks and narrowly opened the door. He fired a single shot, piercing the far right barrel. A clear liquid trickled across the concrete. This time he aimed at the concrete and squeezed the trigger. The ensuing spark ignited the liquid and the flames instantly followed a trail back to the leaking barrel. Loftus flipped over and followed Zack on his stomach inside the galvanized duct. They moved up a gradual incline from the storage room as a low deep vibration and a wave of smoky air rushed by them. Then the duct rocked again. Loftus frantically clawed upward, and in the dense morass he coughed uncontrollably. Sweat flowed down his cheeks as the temperature rose. In the dimly lit haze ahead, Zack reached the grid and kicked his boots against the housing. Then he rolled out. 
into the opening and crawled through the spewing smoke. From the concrete only a few feet below he helped Loftus down. Loftus dropped to a lower corridor. The alarm produced a consistent annoying pulse and red lights flashed through the spreading smoke along the white cinder blocks. Loftus lost his footing when another explosion jolted the hall. Zack yanked him to his feet, but the commotion in the forward area sent them into the next corridor. Personnel scrambled from the side offices. He pointed to a green door ahead and trailed Zack into a narrow stairwell and down concrete stairs. Zack lifted the screening piece to his ear and adjusted the frequency. He listened as Loftus looked up the stairs. They may have to call the local fire companies if they can't contain it. Good, good, come on. Loftus jaunted up the staircase and ducked into an upper hall. He turned to speak when he saw the locker room entrance. Zack shook his head and smiled. The old Loftus lock. We're not out of here yet, good buddy. More explosions rattled the concrete. Loftus raced by the locker room, jumped down the stairs into the garage, and opened the corrugated metal doors. A dozen blue uniformed security troops, armed with high-power rifles, waded further down the asphalt. Loftus crouched and moved around the vehicles. He tapped Zack and smiled when he located a set of keys dangling from the steering column of a shiny red Corsair vehicle. Zack incredulously compressed his face. How do we get by the goons out front? Loftus grasped the door handle and raised his brows. I can't believe we've even gotten this far. He slipped inside the CV and gently pulled the door shut. Listen, Zack, we'll ditch the car and we'll head down along the range. I hiked this area when I was in college. Zack nodded, held his gun in the open window, and spoke in a lower voice. You better hope the luck holds out. Loftus turned the wheels, but he did not start the CV. He rolled back across the spacious garage in neutral and onto the asphalt. The guards fanned their rifles when he cranked the engine. He shifted and slammed the pedal as two guards advanced with pointed rifles. The huge vehicle catapulted ahead, but the rear windshield exploded under gunfire. Bullets shredded the CV's exterior as it skidded down the hill. More rounds hit the trunk at the turn. Time to fly like a bird, Zacky. Understood, Captain. Zack propped open the side door as Loftus veered precariously close to the rock ledge. At the turn, he opened his own door and both men dove from the moving CV. A new volley of bullets whizzed overhead. Loftus tumbled down the grassy slope near the woods, but the CV crunched against the rocks below and disappeared over the cliff. The exhaust hung in the mountain air as the CV exploded into a fireball below. He motioned Zack into the woods. Crackling flames spewed from the flipped-over CV wedged between the trees down the incline. During the next few minutes, they traversed the narrow wooded ridge east of town. Loftus paused at the opening of another rock cliff and peered the valley's surrounding hills. Gray-black smoke from the CV was still visible above the trees. To the north, the town and the university were positioned beyond the farm fields and rolling hills. The road leading to North Street disappeared into the distant woods. Kath's place, if the address was correct, was accessible through the wooded trails, but involving her now would not be smart. In order to leave town, he and Zack needed to hide under the hillside's forest cover and hike northeast. We need to find the trail. Zack listened through his earpiece. Captain, with all due respect, they've already issued a Priority One alert. They'll sweep this valley and screen all incoming and outgoing calls. 
We couldn't get through to Frank now even if we wanted to. Even calling Vernon would be impossible now. Jet copters whooshed down range and thicker black smoke billowed into the clear blue skies above Southeast Mountain. But they don't know the trails. Loftus pointed to the ridges overlooking the town. I say we head along the ridges and out of town. Gonna need more than the old Loftus luck to get us out of this one. Chapter 20 Loftus looked into his friend's dark eyes when they found a door next to the work area under the catwalk. Can you scan from here? No, we actually have to go out there. From ground level, Loftus peered through the window square at the massive glistening red metal coils. Only a few hundred feet separated them from the five men in white jumpsuits seated at the console abutting the last coil. Zack held up the tablet as they shuffled across the concrete. He scanned the upper blue catwalk and kept his gun tucked under his fatigues. There's a tremendous amount of interference, said Zack. He backed up to the coil and placed the tablet against the metal facade. Okay, here we go. Three men in blue uniforms appeared on the catwalk as Loftus panned the upper area. He spoke out of the corner of his mouth. Zacky, it's time to leave the party. I graduated from UMass at Amherst, Massachusetts. This book came together during my many hiking trips along the Holyoke Range, above the Pioneer Valley, and bordering the Connecticut River, and reflections of the college life atmosphere when I was at UMass. The hotel where Vernon Crawford and Loftus met is still there, along with other places around the college. This is Robert P. Fitton asking Tom Loftus, can you really go back, Tommy? I'm boarding the plane for Appleton during the next few chapters. The rest I leave to the imagination and personal history. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com and here's a real nifty factoid you can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com just type in robert p fitten thank you and good night